Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called A Trolley Problem for the LDS Church. Thank you for coming back to listen to another episode of my podcast. I appreciate the followers and listeners that I've gotten up until this point. Thank you for liking the podcast on the various feeds, for leaving your reviews and your comments. That means a lot to me and that helps me get out to a wider audience. Before I begin today, I've got three quick things that I want to talk about. The first one's a little solicitation. The second one is a slight correction and clarification. And the third one, well, that one is about Halloween. So first, to the solicitation. Thank you all so much again for listening to this podcast. If it's something that you enjoy and you are financially able, please consider going to the website ramiumptumruminations.org and going to the right-hand side on the, on the page where you'll find a donation box. From there, you can do a one-time or a recurring donation. Anything helps. And I am so grateful to those that are willing to offer a little financial support to the podcast. On to the second bit of housework before we go into the episode. I re-listened to last week's episode where I talked briefly about Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative and how that relates to some of the problems that the church has faced throughout its history. In it, I would talked briefly about polygamy. I wanted to clarify a little bit of what I said there and just make sure that I, I put it across in the right way. Since the nature of, of some of these marriages is debated, we don't know if there was any sort of sexual intimacy. I glossed over this and I wanted to, I just wanted to hit on it really quickly before moving on. If there was some sort of sexual impropriety with these little girls that he was married to, it is deeply problematic. And when I was talking about another criticism of this of the practice of polygamy, I hope that I did not come across as belittling or trying to make some of these other deeply problematic aspects as smaller than they really are because they are they're very problematic and they have a lot of really uncomfortable implications for a believer. The point that I was trying to put across is that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and these other men that were practicing polygamy and coercing women to marrying them, they were violating the categorical imperative of these women when they held salvation over the heads of these women and used that as the impetus for the marriage, that violated their categorical imperative of making informed decisions about their life. That's the point I was trying to put across. I think there are a lot of other deeply problematic things. This religious abuse that was done to these women violated their ability to make right and wrong choices because they did not have accurate information. They were being coerced. They were being lied to in order to make these choices. 
That's all I want to add to that discussion. When I re-listened to the episode, I felt like I didn't do that topic enough justice, and I worried that I might have offended some listeners that have gone through very real trauma. I did not intend for it to come across that the sexual nature of these relationships was less important. I was trying to express that there were other moral concerns outside of sexual concerns. I hope that that explains what I was trying to say a little bit better than the previous episode did. All right, so the third thing I wanted to get to, it is October of 2021. It's my favorite time of year. I love Halloween. I love the costumes and and I love the fall, the leaves turning orange and all sorts of pretty colors. I absolutely love watching horror movies and horror TV shows and scary stories. It's one of my favorite genres. I think I mentioned at one point that H.P. Lovecraft is one of my favorite authors. (laughs) I I say that with a slight stipulation. He was a bit of a racist. And so if someone takes my recommendation and and goes on and reads some of his works, there were some problematic ideas that he held. But he had a major impact on the genre of horror writing. That was a tangent. What I was trying to say is I want to make a, a, a recommendation to the listeners. I recently finished watching the show Midnight Mass on Netflix. Midnight Mass is, it's directed and a few episodes were written by Mike Flanagan. Not everyone out there is a movie nerd and pays attention to which director made which movie, but Mike Flanagan, he directed Doctor Sleep that came out a couple years ago. Uh, It got excellent critical reviews, but it wasn't widely watched. Great movie. He also did the recent um, Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor. All right, what does a scary show, what does this Midnight Mass have to do with Mormonism? One of the things that stands out with Mike Flanagan as a director of this genre, his stories are a blend of compelling drama set in a horrific environment. He weaves it together so masterfully. So Midnight Mass is a story about a small island with a new preacher that moves into town. He starts doing all sorts of miraculous things in the name of God. It's sparking a religious revival on this island. One of the masterful things that Mike Flanagan did with this show is with this preacher in particular. And what this preacher does has some very clear parallels to Joseph Smith. If you haven't read The Happiness Letter, I definitely recommend going and reading The Happiness Letter, looking up into a little bit of the history of it, What it is, is Joseph Smith is justifying some of the acts and some of the things that he has previously condemned, and he's doing it with scripture. Midnight Mass, the preacher that comes into town, a lot of the same arguments or the same types of arguments that Joseph Smith makes in the happiness letter are very similar to the arguments that this preacher makes and some of the congregants make in Midnight Mass. The way in the show that it's done, it's, it's so subtle, where this preacher is subtly giving hints and leading the members of his congregation towards a horrific thing, but they don't realize it. The, the parallels really end there because um, in the show it takes a very dark turn, but When I was watching it, I got some very clear vibes that felt straight out of the happiness letter. I will put one, say one quick disclaimer on this. 
it is fairly gory. So if blood and um, bodily injury are things that you don't want to watch, then don't watch it. But if the horror genre is something that you enjoy and you're an ex-Mormon and you're familiar with some of the teachings that Joseph Smith did that were problematic, definitely watch this show. It is awesome. I'm just going to leave it at that. Because if I talk too much, I might give away some spoilers. Go watch it. And then if it's something you enjoyed, reach out to me. I would love to discuss it because the show impacted me greatly. Definitely some important messages that were being said. And that right there is what I love about Mike Flanagan is you can take a genre that traditionally is just to scare people or to you know elicit fright, but a master of the craft can take the genre and have a lasting impression with the message that he's trying to say. All right, I've gone on too long. Let's get to the topic at hand, the trolley problem. Today, I want to talk about a thought experiment directly related to the previous episode. In the last episode, I talked at length about deontological moral philosophy and talked about Immanuel Kant and many of his insights to this subject. The trolley problem. It's kind of a famous thought experiment, but I'll go into it. And I think that this trolley problem illustrates the problem that the church is facing today with many of the changes that it needs to make in order to be a healthier organization. Now, the original iteration of this problem comes from, from the 1967 article by Philippa Foote called The Problem of Abortion and the Doctrine of the Double Effect. But I'll, I'll present it in the, in the trolley format that many people are familiar with today. There's a runaway trolley that's going down the railway track. Ahead of it, straight ahead, are five people that are tied up. They're unable to move. The trolley is headed straight for them. And without any intervention, it will run over these five people and kill them. But there is a lever that can divert the train onto a different track. But on this other track, there's one person that's tied up, unable to move. And so if you divert it to the second track, you kill one person. What do you do? Do you pull the lever, save the five people and kill the one? Do you let the, the trolley go and have it kill the five and save the one? What do you do? What the best moral decision in a problem like this? This is a whole genre of, of philosophy referred to as decision problems. And it presents this concept of what is the right thing to do when you're faced with two bad choices? And how do you determine which choice is more bad than the other? To complicate this, what if in this same problem, you knew someone that was tied up on the tracks? If you knew someone that was tied up on the tracks in the group of five, would the decision be easier to pull the lever and kill the one person? Or would it be harder? And then another way to look at this, what if the person that you knew was the one on his own on the, on the separate route? If you pull the lever and save more people, you kill this person that you know. What is the right thing to do? I present this because this is the exact scenario that the church is in. 
the church faces this scenario with so many aspects of its doctrine. And we'll say in this example that the members of the church are the ones on the tracks. If it makes a choice to change a doctrine, being more equitable and loving to a marginalized group, does that choice affect the faith and belief of the people in the other group? So for example, we'll say that just to kind of go with this, this thought experiment, we'll say that marriage equality and the LGBTQ plus community is that one person on the side track. They are the marginalized group. It's just them. And then every other member of the church is, is this group of five people. They're unaffected by marriage equality and the doctrines that the church has around this subject. So should the church pull the lever and affect the faith of the members of the church as a whole in order to save the faith of the LGBTQ plus community. What is the right thing for the church to do? I don't think they have an easy solution to this. I imagine that a few of these members of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency are sympathetic to the LGBTQ plus community. Matthew Gong, Elder Gong's son, is a part of the LGBTQ plus community. Elder Gong has someone that he loves on the track that's part of the one group instead of the five group. So this, this concept, this thought experiment, is the reality for Elder Gong. If he changes this doctrine to save his son, it will affect the rest of the membership of the church, the majority of the membership of the church. It will affect their faith. Put yourselves in the shoes of an elder gong or any other member of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency. Let's say you disagree with policy or doctrine of the church. What do you do? How would you go about making a change? How could you present that change? in a way where the membership of the church will accept it and write off the many doctrines in the past and the many quotes of the past that affirm the exact opposite of what you're trying to put forward. The reason I'm bringing this up is I want to humanize these men a little bit. To this podcaster, the leadership of the church is deified too often among the members of the church, and frankly vilified by those that have left the church. But they are people too. They can be mistaken. They have frustrations and goals and motives and desires, and they are people just like you and me. We need to humanize them and what if you were in the shoes of these leaders? Let's say, as a believing member of the church, believing in your calling to be an apostle, but you disagree with a certain doctrine, what do you do about it? Do you gaslight yourself and tell yourself that, that maybe your own ideas are not from God? If you're a believer in the Quorum of the Twelve, and you're reading past talks by prior leaders of the church that talk about the complete opposite of what you believe, how do you reconcile that? 
What if there are multiple people among the quorum that want to see this change, but they are junior members and don't have as much sway or say in the conversations? What do you do about that? Elder Gong is right in this scenario. Let's imagine for a moment that he does want to see change about the LGBTQ plus policies. He's a junior member. There's very little he can do about this. In my last episode where I was talking about a very similar topic uh, related to the morality of discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community, I cited back to a previous Mormonism Live episode. It's episode 41. I really recommend you go and listen to that episode. RFM and Bill Real present some very valid ways that the church might tackle this subject in a faith-promoting way. This trolley problem can be tackled with a, a number of different moral philosophies to come to the best conclusion. If you look at it through a utilitarian lens, where you're looking for the outcome that does the most good, you would say, it's obvious you have to pull the switch and kill the one person and save the five. Many philosophers that have looked at this come to the conclusion that there is no good answer to the trolley problem. The leadership has to recognize that when they've made changes like this in the past, critics and those that leave the church have used it as ammunition against them. The priesthood ban and the, the polygamy doctrines are regularly cited against the church. And for many reasons, I think it's important to recognize the past harm that the church has done. But let's say you're a believer. If the church makes this change, they're adding one more thing to the list of major doctrines that have changed because of societal pressure. One more thing for them to write a future gospel topics essay about. One more thing to be added to the long list of grievances against the church. This is not an easy decision for them to make. I want to read a comment that Elder Dallin H. Oaks made, what was called the B1 celebration. It marked off the 40th anniversary of the revelation on the priesthood. Now, this was at the conference center in Salt Lake in June 1st of 2018. Now, Elder Oaks starts us off by talking about some major world events and how oftentimes when we discuss things like the JFK assassination or 9-11, people will talk about where they were when it happened, and they will always remember where they were when it happened because it was such a momentous thing. Now, Elder Oaks says that in order to preface him remembering where he was when the priesthood ban was lifted. And this is what he said. The news reached me on a telephone that seldom rang. My two sons and I were working in the yard of a mountain home we built as a place of retreat from my heavy responsibilities as president of Brigham Young University. My sons were between missions. The oldest had returned three weeks earlier, and the youngest was preparing to leave a year later. The earth was caving onto our driveway from a steep slope, and we were trying to stabilize the hillside. We were in the midst of this project, shovel in hand, when the phone rang inside the house. I knew it must be important, 
only a small number of people had the telephone number. And all of them had agreed not to call me about anything that could possibly wait. The caller was Elder Boyd K. Packer. He told me about the revelation of the, on the priesthood, which was just being announced. We exchanged expressions of joy, and I walked back to the hillside. I sat down on the pile of dirt we had been moving and beckoned to my sons. As I told them that all worthy male members of the church could now be ordained to the priesthood, I wept for joy. That was the scene etched into my memory of this unforgettable announcement 40 years ago, sitting on a pile of dirt and weeping as I told my sons of the divine revelation. I'm going to stop citing from Elder Oaks there because if I keep reading, I might go into some implications about what he says and what that would mean about God and God's morality. I'll come back to this and talk about it a little bit down the road. <laughs> I'm really trying not to say anything, but I think I'm just going to say it real quick and then we'll get back to the subject. Same citation, the B1 celebration, Elder Oaks. And this is before the transition from what I quoted to now, he was talking about how he did not understand why the priesthood ban was in place. When he grew up in Utah, it was not something that was even discussed very much because um, there was not much racial diversity when he was growing up in his particular town in Utah. He goes on to say that when he lived in, in Chicago and Washington, D.C., it did become a subject of discussion because he was around members of the church of different races. He makes a statement after setting up that uh, point, and he says, As a part of my prayerful study, I learned that in general, the Lord rarely gives reasons for the commandments and directions he gives to his servants. I determined to be loyal to our prophetic leaders and to pray, as promised from the beginning of these restrictions, that the day would come when all would enjoy the blessings of priesthood and temple. I find some of the things in there problematic. What he's admitting to is that he disagreed with the leaders of the church, and he disagreed with the priesthood ban, but he did nothing about it. But then there's also an implication about morality and when he says that God can change his mind or God can command things such as a priesthood ban and they can be the right thing to do for a period of time and then the wrong thing to do at a different period of time, it means that morality is up to the whims of God. In other words, discrimination, sanctioned slavery, mass murder, all of these things that we hear about in the Bible, these stories that are so atrocious, they can be sanctioned by God to be okay because God said that murder is okay. I mean, th there's some real problems with this line of reasoning that he's using. When there is God-sanctioned discrimination like this, it means that God is looking at one particular child and favoring that child over another for something outside of that person's control. That is not just. If the church wants to make the claim that there is a just God, discrimination is unjust, especially when those that are discriminated against have no control over the thing that they're being discriminated for. The color of your skin, your gender, your sexual identity, whatever it is, that's something that you cannot control. And if God can discriminate against you for something outside of your control, that is not a just God.
if what Elder Oaks here is saying is correct, then the Mormon God is unjust. That was a tangent. I'm sorry. I just I tried really hard to hold it in, but I couldn't. The tangent's over. We're going to jump back to the trolley problem. In my mind, this change in stance on allowing all worthy male members of the church to receive the priesthood is exactly the same trolley problem that the church faces with the LGBTQ plus community now. I don't know that we'll ever get a formal apology for the priesthood ban. Comments such as this might be as close as the church ever gets to it. As we've examined the church and watched it shift its policies and doctrines over time, it has generally followed suit with the culture. It is this podcaster's opinion that they will eventually change their stance on the LGBTQ plus members of the church. Perhaps 40 years after it happens, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve or the First Presidency might remark on where they were when the change happened and how happy they were that it happened. If this change does happen, as I think it will, it will require a consensus of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I don't know when that will happen. It might take more members being called that do have gay and lesbian and transgender and non-binary children for such a change to happen. Running any organization is difficult. They have so many different things to balance and sort out. And it is very hard to make changes, dramatic changes, to an organization of this size. Now, throughout this episode, I have tried my hardest to see this concept through the lens of the leaders of, of the church. That does not diminish the idea that such change needs to happen. The current doctrines of the church are harmful with regards to marriage equality. Oftentimes when the trolley problem is discussed, it's talked about in terms of saving the lives of the people. There is another aspect of this. And the problem is this. If you made the choice, whichever choice it is, whatever choice you decide is the right one, to save the five or to save the one, could you live with yourself after having made that choice? And this idea of could you live with yourself is important in our analysis of the church. At first assessment, you might agree with me when I say that the one person on the track is the marginalized LGBTQ plus community. The heteronormative members of the church would be the five. And the utilitarian thing to do would be, of course, direct the train to go over the smaller group. Let me reframe it just a little bit. In this hypothetical, we're talking about a train running over people. The reality of it, though, is that with the current policy, it is doing very real harm to this marginalized group. Very real harm. Where they are losing their lives and they are dying at the expense of the rest of the members of the church. But... If the church made that change, I don't think the lives of the believing members of the church are at stake in the same way that the lives of the LGBTQ plus community are at stake because of the church's doctrine. 
if the church did make that change, if they decided to be inclusive, to be a loving, accepting organization, and they did make the change, the trolley going to the faithful members of the church would not kill them. It would be, if they spin it the right way, a test of their faith. I can't imagine that a change such as this would cause even a fraction of the pain that the current policies and doctrines have caused to the LGBTQ plus community. If the church does make this choice, flip the switch to the lever, saving the one marginalized person in the large group, they are acutely aware that it will kill the five and be a test of faith to the general membership of the church of how it will alienate the older generations. This is not an easy decision for them to make, but it doesn't make it any less important or any less urgent. Now, this episode is going to come out right after General Conference. I'm recording it beforehand, so if any major changes have happened since then, I may re-record the ending. But if not, I want to do some discussions of the talks in general conference. I may not do a an in-depth two-hour for each episode, as RFM has done in the past. I might pick and choose a few that stood out to me and discuss those. The goal of this episode was to, as I said, humanize the leaders of the church a little bit, present the trolley problem in a way to explain why they might be hesitant to make changes, even if they want to. As many have concluded with the trolley problem, there isn't really a good answer. The only two choices in the trolley problem are not good. They lead to bad outcomes. And I think that the church has faced trolley problems, like polygamy and the priesthood ban and misogyny and marriage equality for a long time. But until they deal with these, these moral issues of equality, they cannot be a healthy organization. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, I would greatly appreciate a review, any comments on whatever podcasting platform that you use. That way, more people can find it. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I hope that you have an excellent day.